0: You are listening to Go Doc Yourself, your weekly documentary book club. Listen in while we two errands dissect our most recent documentary find. Sometimes weird, sometimes mainstream, but always entertaining. Grab a cup of coffee and let's clutch.
1: Hello, and welcome to Go Doc Yourself. I'm Erin McCart, And I'm Erin McCourt.
0: Thank you for joining us this week. We're happy to have you. This week, we wanted to discuss something that, because this will be released the week of Columbus Day. And as we all know, Columbus was a douchey, genocidal asshole. (laughs) So we don't want to celebrate that. Right. Rather, we would like to celebrate the indigenous cultures that we have in this country. So we decided to cover the documentary Gather. This is on Netflix. It's released in 2020. It's only an hour and 14 minutes long directed by Sanjay Rawal.
1: Right. I think he got a good message across. I didn't understand what food sovereignty, this is what the documentary kind of focuses on, This the food sovereignty and the re of food sovereignty, the recovery of food sovereignty for indigenous peoples. And I didn't really understand what that was, but I learned something. I really enjoyed that part of this. It opens with a quote. So let me read that to you. The Red Nation shall rise again, and it shall be a blessing for a sick world, a world filled with broken promises, selfishness, and separations, a world longing for light. And this is a quote by Crazy Horse, who is of the Lakota Nations, and I liked the way that they put that. Yeah. hmm Do you
0: think we're there now? I mean, they kind of discuss it at the very end, but I think we've got to that point where we've destroyed pretty much everything. And now maybe we can look to these people to help bring stuff back.
1: Yeah, I do. I definitely think we're seeing a time of selfishness and separations, a world that's longing for some light somewhere. I really am feeling that. But this one really made me think in a good way. The way this is set up is it hops around to different storylines, kind of. So there's one in the San Carlos Apache Nation in Arizona. So maybe we'll start there talking to a lady named Twyla Casador. She's a master forager. She's discussing family stories from this area going back at least two generations. She's collecting from some dried plants on the plains. Like I said, this is just sort of what I'm gleaning from the footage. She's got a young child in her family. I'm assuming like a granddaughter or something like that. And she's talking a little bit about before the genocide of the Apaches, They had a completely different way of life. Their current generations, and then I put youths because I'm going to say youths as much as humanly possible because it always (laughs) makes me laugh. They don't know their culture. It's not necessarily their fault, but Twyla is working to reintroduce starting small so that much like a seed of these plants, it can take root and grow and help her people. So I thought that was cool. Right.
0: She does have a really cool story. They talk to Her later on as well, and um, yeah, her story is very heartbreaking and hopeful all at the same time, so yeah, 100%. We then go to Stone Barn Center for Food and Agriculture, this is actually on what they say is traditional Lenape land in New York. We meet Chef Nephi Craig, he's White Mountain Apache, mm-hmm. and they talk about a few different of these places, but the White Mountain Apache Nation is considered a food desert, which they discuss, if you're not sure what that is, it generally means that this area doesn't have access to affordable, quality, healthy food, right? There's not a grocery store they can go get vegetables at. They can only get like heavily processed foods, high sugar, high fat content kind of foods, which is really bad for you, especially if that's all you're eating. He also talks about how White Mountain was like almost ground zero for American colonialism which I find interesting and they do talk about this later too that it started on the east coast and then moved its way out west right and so like a plague even <laughs> yeah absolutely like a fucking yeah. plague yeah and so they've been dealing with it for a little bit longer than some of the other nations but I I don't think it matters in the end everyone's got the same nothingness mhm but he was giving like a demonstration to people like a presentation and so part of his presentation to these people discussed how colonialism actually kind of worked in this country. And he said, if you want to attack the people and wipe them out, you attack their food. That's something I never thought about and how crazy that is. I guess I did think about it when it comes to like the, the potato famine of Ireland, it was a similar kind of thing, right? On a much smaller, smaller scale. But yeah, if you take away any food or healthy food or those options, what do they do? They don't have anything left. They have to look to you, the government now, to feed them and take care of them. And so they lose that sovereignty.
1: I thought this was a brilliant demonstration. I mean, kind of laying it out for stupid white people like me, because I didn't understand that either. I thought, what a poignant way to describe this. And he was like, there were complex and rich and self-sustaining civilizations in the way and so they're like, well, what's the best way to get rid of these jokers? Let's just starve them, which is so insidious. But I'm so glad to understand what happened. So I applaud him for putting it in this presentation, which, you know, we were also part of, right? hmm But this is one of the first recorded, at least in his presentation, examples of biological warfare and terrorism. Mm-hmm in the food colonization that happened to this, the result that we're seeing and we have seen is alcoholism, diabetes, homicide, and suicide, because they don't have a lot of choices or options. They're really relegated to have to rely on somebody else. And how horrible for a formerly very independent society. It's just crazy to me. So yeah, the idea is to regain their food sovereignty and heal from these historical traumas. I just really, it really sunk in, you know, when I heard it.
0: Well, and I like that he speaks, particularly Nephi speaks about, if I were to prepare the food and sit it down in front of you and you eat it, it would be good food, you'd be nourished, and you'd be healthy. But for Apache to sit down and eat food that was made by Apache for Apache, grown on our own lands, it would be a healing process. It wouldn't just be a nutritional intake. You would sit down and it would be a healing process to your soul. And I was like, that's amazing if they can take that and expand it,
1: right? Yeah. I also liked that he said, hey, if you feel uncomfortable or or you feel discomfort while you're listening to me talk about this, you need to kind of question why you feel like that. He's trying to get at the fact that it's good to understand violence in all its forms and this is a form of violence. Again, something I'd never considered because I haven't had to deal with it. But I appreciate the education. Right. I mean, a lot of people
0: say that when they talk about taking, you know, certain parts of history out of school because it makes them uncomfortable. And it's like history is not here to make you feel good about yourself. It's here to teach you about what happened. So hopefully you don't do the same horrible things. And if you feel uncomfortable and you're upset by it, why are you upset by it? Is it because you still feel that way? or? Because I didn't do this to these people, I can sit there and listen to this and take responsibility for the people that did it to a certain extent and try to help them in whatever way I can, but I didn't do it. So I don't feel responsible and I don't mind learning about it as
1: uncomfortable as it is. I think you just gain perspective too. Like, let's find a path that goes forward that restores what you need out of this. Right. And how can I support you in that? I think that's the takeaway that I have from it.
0: What's amazing to me is it's not in this documentary, but in a different documentary called Destroy All the Broods." Someone made a comment in that documentary that said the reason why the Europeans were so successful in colonizing, colonizing, colonizing is not a word, colonizing <laughs> this country and other countries for that sake is because they had no problem completely wiping out entire civilizations and cultures. Like, they weren't just coming to rule the country. They wanted a clean slate. They wanted to get rid of everybody. And they had no moral qualms about doing so.
1: Well, that's in the title of the show, Exterminate, which is a very harsh reality that I think we need to acknowledge. We don't do a very good job of that. Right. And this is just one way they did that. Yeah. Bouncing back to this one, we're going to go to the Cheyenne River Lakota Nation. This is in South Dakota. We're talking to a gentleman named Fred DeBray. And he begins talking about people are interested and they're excited. They're supportive of restoring the buffalo herds to the land that he farms, right? He's a rancher of sorts. People not so understanding about the culture and restoring the culture. They're like, well, the animals, yes, of course. And then they sort of like don't get the cultural part of it. And I'm like, oh, that's really saying something again, plain civilizations had been self-sustaining for forever because they had an economy based on the buffalo. And then our government comes in and kills 60 million buffalo to break these people. 60 million. I mean, some of the pictures that they showed, and this is not something I haven't heard before, but the 60 million, I think, did not sink in until I saw these pictures of carcasses, skeletons, skulls, whatever, stacked as high as A skyscraper I mean they just it's amazing to see it and they did this on purpose it's just wasteful and horrible intentional oh god terrible so this forces the people who relied on the buffalo to take shitty government handouts is what I wrote because it comes back to what you were saying about like there are no other options you're eating like government cheese and whatever else I mean okay And then the mental and spiritual hardships that go with this are still something that these people are dealing with. And it's just terrifying.
0: Right. I like how he, so he's growing his buffalo herd. The tribe has a buffalo herd as well. Mm -hmm. And he talks about bringing the herd back as the buffalo grow. So do the Lakota people. They're coming back kind of together. And I, I like that. And that made me, made me all warm inside. Yeah. Yeah. So the last stop, and we will bounce between these groups, but there are essentially like four different groups that we're talking to. Is the Yurok Nation, the Klamath River, Northern California. So we're talking to Samuel Genshaw the Third. Every time I see that, I see Samwise Gamges. It is not.
1: <laughs> it is not Samwise Gamges. Do we have an age on this guy? Because he seems like he's. 17, and he's the wisest kid I've ever, you know what I mean? He seems very young, such a baby face, but I'm guessing he's maybe early to mid-20s. He has to be. Well, at least he can drive because they're driving boats and cars, but they don't ever tell me. And he talks a lot about teaching other youths. And I'm like, so like your classmates, I how old (laughs) are these kids? It's very sweet to see somebody with such intense purpose at his age. W- whatever Absolutely. it is.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. I don't have that kind of purpose in my life now. Right. Much less at that age. So, well, I'm just
1: saying if I were on camera and I was talking about the youths, people would understand that I am currently also not a youth talking to other <laughs> youths. They would be like, yes, that's an old bag talking to some kids. We got it.
0: <laughs> Listen, Sam Wise. All right. So, Samuel is part of the Yurok Nation. So, they are dependent upon the salmon. So they live on the river. They have used salmon as their source of food and I'm sure other things forever. He talks about 2,000 years ago, I think is what he said. There was an earthquake. It shifted the river's pattern. And since that time, the Uruk have used that river for fishing. So at least 2,000 years they've been doing this. They were also the last tribe essentially to be contacted by the horrible Europeans. And this one is... Ugh, this is hard. I agree. He said the government essentially said there's gold out there, people go out there, prospect, whatever, and they were kind of done making deals with the natives and so they essentially said if you can clear the land of the indigenous people living there, it's yours. So if you were indigenous and you were seen, you were essentially shot on sight.
1: Yeah. The time I have for this is 1840s, so that's not that long ago. No. <laughs> He said only 10% of their population survived. 10%.
0: Yeah. yeah. Can you imagine? You're just living your fucking life and then people are like, well, I want what you have. So you have to die.
1: And it's accepted. Yeah. That's the thing. Like, it's this was accepted. We're okay with this. Yeah. Genocide is a heavy word, but I think it's accurate here. Yes, absolutely. He said, you're born with the burden
0: of being indigenous. You have to learn how to pass down the traditions and things to the next generation. Because if you don't, it's gone. Kind of like train riding. One generation and it could be gone.
1: (laughs) Which is quite a cross to bear, right? Like you're dealing with your own shit. The picture that you get from this is that a lot of the people that are speaking out in this documentary have overcome some shit. They've dealt with addiction. They've dealt with all kinds of problems and yet here they are tasked with also having to make things better for the next generation or face extinction basically which is a lot a lot yes and you're right and he seems very young to be having that burden on him already yeah we kind of go back to chef Nephi at this point and he's talking about he's a French trained chef he talks a lot about the addiction that surrounds kitchen culture, and I immediately thought of the bear (laughs) to show the bear, which is, like, (laughs) awesome, and yet you're, like, so stressful. Right. He discusses that he dealt with addiction. He found sobriety through kind of landing back at the reservation that he grew up on. He found the people's farm and native foods, and he's working with a guy named Clayton Harvey, who is the, I assume either the spokesman farmer or the head farmer or the only farmer of the people's farm. <laughs> There's a lovely Apache word that's associated with that, but I'm not going to butcher it because, you know, my normal pronunciations, not always good. So we'll not mm-hmm. butcher a lovely word. And the show kind of talks about food sovereignty and it's offering more independence, even for things like school lunches, which is something I had not thought about. What an interesting example to make. He talks about as a classically trained chef, there was no mention of native foods anywhere in his education. However, when he got out and was working as a, you know, a chef, it was all over the place. Like being at Five Star, Five Diamond restaurants, they were serving things that he was familiar with from being an indigenous person. So while it was almost being like used, it wasn't being taught. And he, he really felt that it was a, a sham, a terrible thing you know, the taking of culture without, you know, kind of giving due credit. Appropriation. Thank you. That's the word I'm looking for. But yeah, he's he's an amazing person. I really enjoyed listening to him as somebody who's at the right place at the right time. Do you know what I mean? Like what an amazing spokesman for this.
0: Right. And like you said, each one of them talks about going through adversity and a lot of it is addiction. If anyone's ever read or listened or seen anything about the reservations in this country, you'll know that they are plagued with problems like addiction and alcoholism, mostly because there aren't many other options there. I get that. So you see these people who have come out of it, and they are a beacon of hope, and they can present a way out for other people, which I think is beautiful. I like what he said about food sovereignty. He said, when you have food and sovereignty, you are free to be self-reliant, to grow your own food, choose the food you want to eat, choose the food you want to put in the school systems, and really self-sustaining. He said our reservations across the United States are far from being free. So this is just a start. This is just the first step, really.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So they have a goal to open a cafe, Cafe Gujo. This is going to be a place where the chef cooks and the people's farm provides the supply of all the fresh things you can get. They don't necessarily talk about where the meat comes from, but I don't know that the meat's not part of the farm. They just didn't talk about it in this. I think they have more than that as a vendor, but I think all the
0: vendors, for lack of a better word, are locally grown, sourced, and sustainable, yes.
1: Right. So again, you know, we talk a little bit about the food desert here, and it's allowing connection beyond just nutrition, and I really liked that. This guy is super passionate, and it it's inspiring to hear him talk about his plans and the hope that he wants to bring to this area. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I agree. We scoot on back to the other side of the country, to the Yurok Nation, and Samuel and the others go fishing in the river. Now, first thing I'll say is when I see this river, it has waves and shit. I thought they were at an ocean beach at first. (laughs) Did you notice that? It's not like a, a smooth... I mean, some places it was really smooth, but some places it really looked like they were on... The Pacific or something.
1: It's a major river. It's not like a creek like you find around
0: here. Thank you. Thank you.
1: Well, also, I mean, they're doing sane fishing, right, with nets and stuff. So you kind of get the idea that there's, this is a a populous fishing area. It's not like you're, like, there's, like, four bass and this whole thing or whatever. (laughs) Right. Yeah, they're doing some, like, big time fishing. I wouldn't say it's industrial scale, but it's more than a pole and a rod and you're just, you know what I mean? It's crazy. Right
0: hmm Right. But he talks about how the salmon run is directly connected to the health of the community. So if you have a bad fishing season, then you see a rise in drug abuse and suicides and depression. And if you have a good fishing season, you see the prosperity of the the nation and the community grow.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: This particular day, they didn't catch anything. There are what, about four or five of them out there fishing together, not individually, they're all fishing together, but they. Didn't catch anything. Mm-hmm. And so another group of people were on the other side of the river and did have a good fishing day. And so they were able to spare a salmon, which mm-hmm. is a huge fish if you've never seen one,
1: for them for the night so they could eat. And one fish would feed several people. Like I was like, God oh, damn, that is a big ass fish. <laughs>
0: <laughs> they are huge, right? Right. They did show the cleaning of the fish, which I could have lived without. But I get it. What I like is he was also explaining why he cleaned the fish. He said, he showed the gills. He's like, the gills are pink, which means it's healthy. If they're gray, then it's sick. You don't want to eat it. And I'm like, oh, that's good to know in case of apocalypse. They showed salmon eggs.
1: Yeah, and what you could do with that. So he's really using the opportunity to, again, invest in the people that he's working with, right? And that's really neat. He's not just like flying through it because everybody's starving. I'm sure that that is also a part of it, but he... (laughs) For the cameras or, you know, whatever. He just comes across as a really neat individual. He does. He does.
0: And all of these people that we're talking to seem very grounded. They have passion. They know what they want to do. And they know how to do it. And that, I don't know, I guess that gives you purpose, which makes you a little happier, right? Right. They talk about how their grandparents had to hide when they went fishing because they would get arrested. Yeah. And how they went to war with the government over fishing rights. And here they are, probably still fighting. They showed a lot of news clips of when the government put a moratorium on fishing in the Klamath River. And they show videos of, like, boats ramming into, like, government boats ramming into their boats to stop them, like, arresting them, beating them, just so they wouldn't fish. Again, pretty fucking audacious considering they probably are supporting commercial fishing. That's depleting the population. And ruining it for
1: everybody. But these cats here, they can't fish. That's what's got to be controlled. Right. There wasn't any discussion on why there was the moratorium or whatever you're going to call it on fishing, why they couldn't fish. I mean, the implication is that we're just dicks and we just don't want people to be independent. Let's, Let's amend that. We don't want people who aren't white to be independent. Okay, there you go. Thank you for fixing that for me. But yeah, it's like, you think a small, like... The everyday fisher is the problem here. I'm very curious to see, like, are there some statistics I can see? (laughs) Right. You know what I mean? Versus commercial fishing or damming up the river in such a way that nothing can get around. I mean, that was part of this discussion, too. Mm -hmm. They had stopped the river at certain points, and the people were trying to protest and get that changed so that salmon could run upstream because people need it to live. Right. (sighs) so annoying. Chucky Carpenter, who's an older
0: indigenous man who did fight for these rights. He was part of these protests. He's part of the Hoopa Nation. And I think what really blew me away is you think of California now as being fairly liberal and progressive and working towards righting some of the wrongs. But some of those wrongs were pretty fucking bad. Like they say the first session of the California Congress made a law which had a loophole that would permit people to still enslave California Indians is what it said, but Native American people. Are you fucking kidding me? That's sorry. I have no words. The nullification of hunting and fishing rights in the 20th century. So that's not that long ago. I mean, it's, it's escalated into armed standoffs. And so Chucky was saying once they finally heard their demands, it was a little easier to communicate, but it took a while. And these demands I mean, outrageous, outrageous. Listen to what the natives wanted Indian health. These are his words. I apologize. These Indian health, Indian education, and sovereignty. How dare they ask for those things? You know, we
1: just like to live, please. Yeah. And this isn't a thing where they're concerned about vast amounts of wealth, which I think is a definite difference between our cultures. They're just like, hey, we want access to the stuff we had access before you assholes rolled up on us here. Can we please get back to the point where we can take care of ourselves, please? Right. We'll mind our business. You mind yours. Right. And somehow we still have a problem with this.
0: Yeah. How is that possible in this year of our Lord 2022? How is it still a thing?
1: Right. It's late to be fighting these battles. This should have been over and done with, and they should have what they want. Let's move on to kind of going back to the Dubray Buffalo Ranch. So Fred talks about growing up doing ranch work for his parents, or sorry, his grandparents. His parents had been killed in some kind of something. Not really discussed what happened there, but the options were the children were foster kids, or they went to live with their grandparents. And so that's what they did. It ended up being a good... I mean, he seemed positive about going to live with his grandparents. He did mention that he had to go to Indian boarding school as the only option for any kind of education. And boy, what a school it was. They have some 1929 propaganda where they're dressing. The indigenous children in all the white garb and making them sing one little, two little, three little Indians. And I just about lost my shit. I was like, okay, this is such a great example to put in this documentary, but like such a miss overall. Like, mm.
0: well, you said one of the mottos was kill the Indian, save the man.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So this is forced indoctrination into the majority white culture. And he and his friends dreamed of large buffalo herds again. They want to restore their culture and basically just do away with this nonsense. hmm Yeah. So he does start the intertribal buffalo cooperation. Although they said bison in the thing. It was written buffalo, but they said bison. Do that without what you will.
0: Those are two separate animals,
1: are they not? I mean, I don't have the... I don't have my species book handy, but yeah, yeah. I mean, you raise it. I mean, like, I was like, oh, okay. But I wrote down buffalo. Sure. Yeah. Okay. So they talk a lot about there's a lot more money in cattle ranching, right? Because you can sell the cattle. Like it's an industry, the buffalo industry, not as much money in that. So while he's working to restore those buffalo, he is excited to know that his children are now getting involved. They have a shared vision and they want to see dad's vision through or see the you know vision for their people, whatever. But it's not just going to end with him. And I think he's like, yes, I got those kids on board. Aces. Right. Or whatever. Yeah. Right. And his daughter's in high school. So that says a lot if you can get a high school kid involved
0: in anything that you To do care about anything. Parent. Yeah. Yes. One of the impressive things is for the Intertribal Buffalo Cooperative. They had 27 tribes that met together in Albuquerque, you know, kind of formed this, which is pretty impressive. But yeah, his daughter, Elsie Dubray is featured in this as well. And she's very involved in the ranch and really wants to do that in a different way, as
1: we'll see later. But yeah. Sure. So I've got, hopping back to the White Mountain Apache Nation at this point, Clayton Harvey is on the People's Farm. He talks about having a Like an intern or a researcher there for a season, kind of talking to him about what food sovereignty meant to him and all that kind of stuff. And Clayton just really finds that this is the time when he buys into it. He too has landed back on the reservation after being young and just wanting to get away and blah, blah, blah. And so when he's a little bit older, he comes back, he's dealing with while he's recovering from addiction. It's the farming and being connected that helps him get through that a little bit better. And he's excited that he'll be selling goods at Capigoujo to be able to stay. This is going to help with not only sustaining the farm, but they'll be able to provide more stuff to like social events. They mentioned dances and there won't be such like shitty, sugary stuff there for them. They might have different options. And I thought that was neat because I hadn't really thought about that. They talk at this point a lot about the incidence of diabetes among the tribes members and kind of what they can do to combat that. And a lot of this comes from what is available. How can they get away from so many processed foods and hopefully help in the long term with that kind of stuff?
0: Yeah. He goes and he presents, I think with Twyla at an Apache diabetes prevention workshop, because also, I mean, it's also brought up in the, for the Lakota nation that diabetes in children is very prevalent. And so one of the things he said is we believe that through farming reintroducing what has been lost, it'll help the overwhelming rates of health disparities that our people are facing. And I thought that's just a nice, succinct statement. But yeah, I mean, it says a lot in a small statement, but it says a lot. And I like that. Mm-hmm. And he also talks about organic food. Oh, we don't we didn't call it organic back then. It was just food. Ladies and gentlemen, I want to tell you right now, organic food is a fucking sham. All right. It's not sustainable. <laughs> they are not not using pesticides and they're not regulated as much, so they can use pesticides that are more harmful for you. So do with that information what you will, but organic farming is a scam.
1: And so is any kind of food labeling. It's uh yeah. bought. Mm-hmm.
0: It's bought. Your yeah. salt is not non-GMO. It's not possible for it to be GMO. <laughs> so just stop it.
1: <laughs> also let's get into the fact while we're on this soapbox that it is a very privileged thing to be concerned with the pesticides used to grow your food. If you are starving and you're worried about crop yields, you're not going to worry so much about whether that is organic or not. So.
0: Absolutely. It's a privileged thing. Yeah. Yeah. So Twyla takes Clayton out foraging because she's a traditional harvester and they show that, but she's also discussing it at this diabetes presentation as well. And she said, when you're out there, You open your mind to something else. You're in the air and the sun and the rain and the weather, and you just become part of your environment, right? So it's not just about foraging for food. It's also spiritual. It's also work. It takes more work to do this than go to the grocery store. So that's good for your health because you're moving and exercising while you're doing this. So there are a lot of benefits to harvesting. I will say if I tried to do it, I'd probably pick the wrong berry and die within 15 minutes. I know it, but- (laughs) I would be happy to learn what not to eat. (laughs) Right, right. She also talks about her past. So Twyla's been clean for over 16 years, which is amazing. As anyone with any kind of addiction can tell you every day, you have to think about it. So good for her. And she talks about how she was also now she's very vague, but she had a babysitter when she was young before she was school and her babysitter's boyfriend, she said, did bad things to her. I'm assuming she was sexually assaulted. And she didn't tell anyone. She kind of held on to it. She was ashamed of it for 45 years, which breaks my heart because it wasn't her fault at all, right? But she learned to cope and she learned to heal through harvesting and foraging their traditional foods. It was something to help her get her spirit back, essentially.
1: Sure. She's an eight lady. She says that she's not ashamed of it anymore and she really like you said she's she's not graphic about what happened but you do get the gist of it so yeah and she's trying to work with people beyond this to provide that same opportunity for them and i thought that's what it's all about right it's trying to make things better for those around you instead of just being a selfish dick so good stuff <laughs> right so we come back to our friend the chef talking at the Rainbow Treatment Center for Nutritional Recovery he talks a little bit about his life experience with alcohol and marijuana and his son. And he talks about the kid would come and sniff him and like kind of glean from that what kind of shape he was in, which is, I mean, that's a really interesting way to put it. But I think it's powerful. Like he knew he wasn't in a good space. And that kid was like, all right, well, we're going to judge dad, you know, kind of figure it out from this. He is divorced from that kid's mom, but he is remarried and they have a new baby who is adorable. They show the little girl kind of toddling around and stuff, but he seems like a wiser man, a more self-aware man, a guy that's coming to this relationship differently than he did before. And I really applaud him for owning it, you know? So Mm he talks about
0: teaching his kids the old traditions, right? And passing it down and yeah,
1: right, right. Do you want to talk about Elsie? I feel like I've been talking for a while, so. Sure. Okay. So, back to the Lakota Nation. More am
0: with Elsie, who is Fred Dubray's daughter. Love this girl so much. She talks about wanting to right the wrongs that have been done and is still being done. So, she wants to make a difference in the world. This girl has got huge dreams and huge potential. When I was in high school, it was like, how can I skip out of school
1: And smoke a joint, right?
0: (laughs) That was my most pressing thing. So she wants to be a scientist. You go, girl.
1: That's right. Kudos.
0: And I like how she says that she never thought that she was very traditional until she started to realize the value of the Lakota culture and the lifestyle and belief system. She said they believe in things like truth and wisdom and theory, so does science. So they mesh well together. And there's a lot of traditional knowledge that has been overlooked because it wasn't backed by science. And as we all know, there's a whole lot of woo, that's a whole lot of nothing that's being sold to people just to make them feel better. Placebo effect. If it works, it works. But there's a whole lot of stuff that actually has merit and people were living with this knowledge for a very long time. And a lot of our, even drugs today started there. If you think about aspirin came from what bark or something. Yep. Yeah. So I agree that there's a lot out there that is completely legit just because it hasn't been verified and peer-reviewed.
1: It is really interesting to hear the dismissal of thousands of years of learning. I mean, we see it kind of all the time, right? In any kind of quote-unquote savage cultures. I mean, like anything that they know, we we couldn't possibly learn anything that people have been living on this land and doing things right for some time.
0: How can people get away with calling a culture savage when you're the one coming in and killing them all?
1: Because they're not white. That's how you do it.
0: (laughs) That's all that matters. I just, the contradiction, the sheer blindness
1: to see anything of your own wrongdoings is amazing. Right. Right up. I mean, it's just dismiss all of the highest order. So I'm so Mm -hmm. glad to see that she's poking around on some of those things where, you know, she's discussing the diet that they're following It was really good for people. And, you know, how do you get the backing for that? How do you, you know, find numbers and things? You know, it's almost like she's looking for that to perpetuate this. And I really commend her for looking for numbers to help convince people. I thought that was cool.
0: Right. Yeah. So she's going to do a project for the science fair And she noticed the high rate of diabetes in Native youth and realized she didn't have diabetes and was wondering if it's because she was raised on buffalo meat on the ranch versus other people in the community who were raised on different food. So Mm -hmm. that's what she wants to do is figure that out. That was her science project. So we're here for it. Loved it. But we'll get back to that. Sure. Because now we got to go back to the Yurok Nation.
1: We sure do. So our bestie Samuel is talking about there are no grocery stores. He said they live from the gas station and I thought I had to kind of pause and think about what that would be like. There's no grocery store, which they've mentioned before on this, but it didn't really sink into me until he said we have to live on food from the gas station and I was like, there's only so many taquitos I think I could probably right.
0: eat. Yeah. Right. I think I don't eat as well as I should. I know that, but I'll go through a period of time where you eat a bunch of fast food for like a couple of days or a week and then... right. I just crave something green, just give me an orange, an apple, a piece of lettuce, something that came yeah. from the ground, and the fact that they
1: don't even have that option right breaks my heart so that was a really good example to me again, of what my privilege is is that i would I've never been in a place where I could not get fresh foods right It's amazing right. So he says he feels like this is another form of a long term genocide. And I'm not, I'm just like, oh, it's again, this kid, this kid is so bright, just amazing. So he started something called the Ancestral Garden, which is a non profit youth group. Okay. You said it,
0: and I wrote it down the first time that way it's Ancestral okay. Guard oh okay because it said yes i i agree because like when he said it or something i don't know if it was typed out on screen that way but later on a couple other times it is written on there and it's ancestral guard
1: which makes more sense because there's no garden involved okay well that's good because you're right i do have it written down later as ancestral guard but yeah okay right good. so it's the guard not the garden okay so still a non-profit for the youths yes he has taken kids. I mean, like, of various ages, right? There's little ones and, like, other teenagers or whatever. The timeless Samuel doesn't (laughs) discriminate. He's reconnecting. He's working with people to reconnect with the river. And by doing so, he feels like this might be a way for folks to combat depression, suicide. Probably in a longer form, he mentions cancer. And so we see some of him working with people with like traditional tools, they're kind of out there. There's a big group of seals sunning them on a sandbar or something like that. And he's talking about like, you know, this is part of our culture too. Like it's respecting the animals. And if you see people out shooting them and stuff, don't stand for that. And I thought, wow, I don't know. I'm just really impressed by him.
0: I am too, but I had another thought because he says, they're here too. They're just trying to live and trying to eat, right? The seals. So we leave them alone. We give them respect. However, by that logic, aren't the fish you're going to catch and kill also just trying to live and eat and
1: do they thing? I'm just saying. You cut to the heart of me, Erin. I don't. I don't have a great answer for you <laughs> for that. But seals are very cute, and I don't like to think about them getting shot. So <laughs> <laughs> that's true. But there are some indigenous peoples in,
0: I want to say Alaska. That that's a pretty significant source of their food and oil and all sorts of stuff are seal. So just depends where you
1: live, I guess. So then we kind of hop back to Cafe Gujot, and there's a coordinating event with Twyla. They're sampling the chef's cooking and Twyla's taking people on little nature walks to like connect, you know, kind of bring it around, right? That's sort of my understanding of what was going on there. Right. She's. This is the sixth annual Apache Harvest Festival. Oh, lovely.
0: Okay. And so, yeah, you have Clayton presenting, you have Nephi, and he provides some food that they'll be making. What I like is that Twilight, when she takes them out after they've eaten some of that food, she's taking them out and showing them, you know what you just ate? This is what you just ate, this leaf right here, and this is what he cooked in that. And I thought making that connection is
1: amazing because usually they're completely separate in my mind, Right. Right. So it was a really nice teaching moment. They seem to really be able to leverage that. These guys are PR wizards. There is sort of a horrible part where she's hunting rats. And there's a lot of stomping and running around trying to hit the rat in the head with a stick. Again, this is not a judgment thing. I'm just like, wow, number one, they're efficient if they're able to catch a scurrying rat. Right. And they're trying to avoid, like, snakes and stuff, which is... Rattlesnakes. Yeah. Another consideration I had not mm-hmm. thought of. Yeah. She's out there with her. I think it's Maya.
0: Is that her name or is it Myra? The little girl. Yes. It's her niece. And she talks about how she came from a shattered home. So now she's living with Twyla. And Twyla's teaching her how to reconnect with the traditional ways, which is helping her kind of heal. And they go, yeah, pack rat hunting. Oh, it is, it isn't easy to watch, but all I could think of was the Pop Goes the Weasel song (laughs) when they're running around trying to bonk it on the head. (laughs) But she does mention that you you can't like crush it. You have to just hit the head and bop it because you don't want to like damage the meat in any way. So that's a way to kill it without damaging anything. I'm like, okay, that seems like a whole lot of work for very little meat.
1: Right. So later... She's showing how to dress it and cook it and stuff like that when she's working with the chef, and it's a little gruesome. It's not very fun to watch, but again, this is a situation where I am uneducated on how these things work, so if you had, like, a bunch of pack rats, I assume it's kind of like a fish fry. That's what I've seen before when you have the little fish, and you're not, like, super little, not, like, creepy little, but... You know, you're not getting a whole lot off of one, but in a clump, maybe it's worth it.
0: Yeah, that's what I was thinking, too. They came over, it was like a pack rat boil, if you will.
1: (laughs) Yes, they do boil them and, like, pull the fur off and stuff, and I'm like, (sighs) okay. Listen,
0: by that same statement, though, I dislike seeing any meat process. My meat comes from the grocery store. I don't want to think about what it went through before that. So unless I'm in an apocalypse type of situation, and then I'll do what I got to do to survive. You know, we'll all come out of that. But as it stands, while they were at Twila's for the rab oil, she was talking about how there are a lot of native plants that are medicinal that humans can't eat and ingest because it'll make us sick. However, these Other animals can ingest them. And as it goes through their system, they can retain some of the medicinal properties without the toxic properties. So as you eat this, you also get some of the medicinal properties. And I thought, that's
1: brilliant. Yeah, I agree 100%. I liked the fact that they were showing the preparation of this stuff. So like I said, I'm I'm not trying to shit on it. I'm just saying like, this has not been my experience. So it was a little bit like, wow, they know what they're doing, which is amazing.
0: And they said it tastes like chicken. So if someone had prepared it and given it to me, I'll absolutely eat it. I'm a fat girl. I will eat it. But I don't want to see anything prepared. I would become a vegetarian faster than anything else if that were the case. Right, right. After they're bonking the rats, they have like this, it's almost like a little intermission. They show all four different kind of groups that we're talking to in different settings as they're teaching the next generation. And they seem to be happy and smiling. There's great music in the background. It's just like a little montage. But it made me so happy because everyone looked happy. Everyone was just living their lives. And it was just really nice to see. So I agree 100%. It was very uplifting. They may go back to Elsie. It's the science fair. So as we said, she wants to use science to prove the environmental and health benefits of grass fed buffalo, which is what they have on their ranch. To do that, she started analyzing the lipid content in the buffalo meat versus cattle so she has four samples she has grain and grass-fed buffalo grain and grass-fed beef and she extracted the lipids from the meat And she used tlc thin layer chromatography chromatography to separate out the different lipid components now i haven't done tlc since college but i will say it is fun to do and watch because it's a very visual representation of the separation of things whereas most of chromatography you don't see anything other than a scan right is this gravity No, it's not. It's um, solvent based, but it's on a plate. So you can see the spots moving with the solvent and how it's separating. And then it looks like she has some IR scans to show the analysis of that. So the results are the grain fed beef had the highest amount of bad fats, the lowest amount of good fats and vice versa for the grass fed buffalo. So it proves that the grass fed buffalo meat is much better for you. It's also better for the environment as we've learned. So well done. Can we talk about Elsie doesn't look like if you were to look at her you wouldn't think oh she's native. Right? She doesn't have a traditional native look. There is a group of kids that come up and are talking to her about her presentation and one punk ass kid was like, "Well, how do you say buffalo in Lakota?" To which she responds, to Tonka. Of course we all know that. We've seen dances with wolves." That's but what she I was going to say. Yes. <laughs> guess she's Lakota, mm-hmm. but he was like, "Oh, okay. I mean, I guess you're native enough." And I was like, "Dude, stop it!" He was kind of a douche,
1: this kid. But agreed, this was his Oscar moment. Also, there's a ginger on camera, and I'm like, "How? Well, what?" That's what I said. I said, "We meet."
0: What I wrote was, "We see Ellie's nemesis, Grayson, little ginger fuck." Is what I called.
1: <laughs> He's probably lovely. He probably <laughs> is, but I'm just like. Wow. Wow. (laughs) I'm really glad to know some of the specifics on how she did her testing because I was like, okay, the chromatography that I am familiar with as a biologist is the kind that you put into a big machine and let it do stuff for you, which is hundreds of thousands of dollars. And I'm like, it's been my experience that high school kids don't have access to that kind of equipment. Usually it's like very, very basic lab equipment in most of your high school labs, so I was kind of curious what that testing looked like. So it was good to know to understand a little bit more about that.
0: Yeah, it's just a it's just a coated plate. It's pretty small. Yeah, and you you put dots on the top, and then you watch it go down with the with the solvent. It's pretty neat. Nice. Okay. Cool. They leave you hanging as to who wins, but I'm gonna I'm gonna put that in here now. So we get to the end, and they're announcing, and the runner up is. <gasps> Grayson, little gingerfuck, He got the runner up. So the winner is Elsie. She won. Of course she did. If she didn't, I would have been very upset with this entire documentary. But she did win. Good for her.
1: Yeah, I hope they paid for her whole college, too. So that'd be lovely. Right. <laughs> right. Yes. So at this point, we kind of flip back to Capacujo. It is getting a remodel first. And then we do see that there is a grand opening. The grand opening looks amazing they have a cafe full of people now I don't know that I mentioned but this is a converted gas station so that is the space that they're using so they are showing kind of the hard hard remodel like they're taking out flooring they're taking out wall stuff they're putting up walls and you know stuff so they are getting the aesthetic and the I don't know kitchen area rehab the way they want it to I mean this guy's a Classically trained chef. I'm pretty sure he knows what he's doing. So, you know, kind of rehabbing it to get it in such a fashion that they want it before opening. So Grand Opening comes, he's given people like samples of different things. There's all kinds of crazy shit going on. There's like a smoothie that they've packed in snow for the presentation. It's it's very appealing to all the senses, which is kind of Fine culinary experiences are all about. It's not just how it tastes, it's how it's presented, it's how it smells, it's it's all these kinds of things.
0: Yeah, and I like how they they explain the courses as they're taking each one out. They explain what it is, how they got it,
1: and everything. Yeah, it's pretty cool. My question to you is mm-hmm. what is the pricing structure going on in this place? Because it is fucking fancy. I mean, they're not dressed fancy. But the presentation, at least for this grand opening, is fancy. And they don't, like, ever show you a menu. I am under the impression that this is not a terribly affluent society right here. And I'm very curious about that. So I went online and I poked around, but I could not find anything about Uh, this.
0: Yeah, I I was curious too because you're right. It seems like a fine dining experience in a not fine dining establishment, so to speak, which is nice. I'm all about that. But his goal was to bring healthy traditional foods, I assume at a reasonable cost, so more people
1: have access to it, right? I mean, I would love even if it was no cost, but they don't ever tell me what it is. They never like, there's no menu on there. So I love the idea. I just was kind of curious about the more practical side of it and how that worked out. I wish they would have discussed that a little bit.
0: I wonder, okay, so there are two options there. It could be run like a nonprofit, profit yes. right? To where there wouldn't be much cost at all, or they can run it at a base cost. So whatever they have to pay and then pay our people to space, so they're not really making a profit so much as just surviving and making sure they get that out to people.
1: Yeah, I was not under the impression that this was going to be like a giant moneymaker. They don't really seem to be interested in that. That is not what their main goal is. However, I do think that There has to be some kind of system that keeps it going. I I just was curious about what one could roll up there and get on the everyday. I I mean, like your grand opening is going to be maybe a little bit more bougie than your everyday stuff. I don't know that they're going to have like whatever those smoothies in a shot glass packed in a thing of snow. Like it seems a little extra for your everyday. Right. Right. And extremely seasonal. You can't get snow year round. (laughs) So anyway, that was a thought that I had
0: at this point. I have no idea, but it's a good uh, a good question. We'll assume they're not for profit. Okay, I like that plan. Get grants and stuff. So we go back to Samuel and we also meet Nat Pennington, who is the Ancestral Guard advisor. And he's helping them with, say, the business aspect of running a nonprofit group, right? And he's he loves working with them, but it's funny. He's like, it's really hard to get them to bring the receipts. They had wads of paper that were the receipts, and I'm sure their accountants <laughs> Fucking hate them. (laughs) But what was really interesting about this particular part was so they talk about going to the Amazon to fight against the Belo Monte Dam with indigenous people there. And, you know, these indigenous people thought they were the only indigenous people left in the world. So I'm sure they were very happy to see people from around the world come and support them who were also indigenous to their countries. And And then John, who is Samuel's brother, John Luke, if you will, he's Samuel's brother. He talks about going to Malaysia to work with Indigenous people there and how similar some of their cultures are, like the way they make their boats and stuff. And I thought, man, these kids, as young as they are, are doing such amazing things, not just locally, but worldwide. They're going around the world to help other Indigenous communities
1: and learning from them and growing. That's amazing. This whole thing left me with a feeling of hopefulness hopefulness
0: for the indigenous population and a little bit of i'm really not good enough to be living in this this country (laughs) i have a, a long way to go to be to to have the rights yeah
1: we do kind of flip over to the mashpee wampanoag nation in massachusetts we meet a young lady named danielle hill she's the culture bearer for the wampanoag Samuel is also with her at this point. They're having a discussion about the colonizers moving west, also like a plague, which is what I wrote at this point. They kind of talk about Thanksgiving as an example because it's taught to white people as we invited the indigenous people to join us for Thanksgiving instead of the other way around. And that's what history now says is the event. And it's completely wrong. So... They're talking about, we take, as I'm talking about white colonists, we take what we want and we spin it however we like. And we're the dominant culture. So that's what gets written down and perpetuated. So that's not accurate. But Samu kind of feels like a commonality with Danielle through these experiences, despite being on opposite coasts. So it's just kind of interesting to see them getting together and sharing these stories and experiences and how they're moving through this to try to find something better on the other side.
0: Do you ever think
1: that Native Americans
0: think, man, if I could just go back in time and tell my ancestors to let those fucking Europeans die over the winter instead of helping them, (laughs) everything would be okay,
1: right? I think we're too, uh, there were too many of us. I think, I mean, you know, Roanoke happened, but then we still showed up again there. So I don't know. Roaches, yeah. Right, exactly. (laughs) That's great... <laughs> yeah, we're very persistent in horrible things. But Samuel then is giving a talk at Yale. And I thought, wow. So they also mentioned that Yale is sitting on traditional Quinnipiac. So that's that's indigenous land, too, in Connecticut. It's all indigenous. This entire country is indigenous. Know, land. but I was just so. like, I appreciate them calling that out. And so they're presenting to students. There's some music and some traditional stuff going on there. But Samuels has a phrase that I really liked. It's restorative revolution. And that's what they're participating in here. And I thought, so cool. So
0: cool. Yeah. He said, the industrial revolution is over. Now, if we want to survive, if we want to carry on life on Earth, we need to be part of the restorative revolution. I love that. I love everything about that. Epilogue.
1: There are references to something called Standing Rock and Bears Ears political movements, which are fighting for water and hunting rights, which in essence, in this case, equal human rights, mm-hmm. which is pretty amazing. They mentioned that Elsie is studying biochemistry as a major and a minor in Native American studies at Stanford. At Stanford. Yes. I go, know. Girl. Go, lady. Go. So Samuel in the Ancestral Guard advocates for the Klymouth River and others Worldwide, so that's kind of coming in where you're talking about Malaysia and you know different places for the yeah. So that's really neat. And they also mention if you're interested in learning more about all of this food sovereignty, you can go to www.nativefoodsystems.org. Yeah,
0: that was it. That's where we ended, kind of on a. This is what we need to do. This is how we can do it. I love this documentary. I feel like it was easy to watch both times. It was. Very quick, but you get a lot of information, and I learned so much because you're right, they don't teach us in history, they don't teach us about the native cultures in their history, which I think would be an amazing class to take or classes I'm surely it's more than one class to cover all of that, <laughs> but it's still it was so well done and beautifully shot, and I just loved everything about it.
1: I really enjoyed the relevance of you know past actions and how they're fixing things from this point going forward. They are really inspiring. These are, I mean, they're people from diverse backgrounds as far as like some have educations, some maybe not necessarily, but they are empowered. They're, and I, I don't know. I just really enjoyed the fact that they're just stepping out and doing stuff. They're taking action, I guess. And that's the part that I was like, you guys are the best, All right? You can't change the past. We can't change what happened. We can
0: only change how we move forward. So they are doing that. They are changing how right. they move forward. So I
1: loved it. So it was good. I'm glad you recommended this one. Good job.
0: Thank you. Thank you. Let's hold on to that after I have several bad ones in a row. I'm just <laughs> I think that's my stunt.
1: Anyway, <laughs> next week, we're going to talk about something called the anthrax attacks. So this is a 2020, 20. oh my God, a 2022 pick.
0: <laughs> that you are going to bust out in the Ramones right. or something.
1: <laughs> An hour and 34 minutes. We have not officially called it up to see if we can view it, but I believe it should be available somewhere for the streaming, and if you're a person that remembers the early 2000s, the anthrax scare was pretty big and pretty real, so I will be interested to learn a little bit more about it.
0: Yeah, me too. It looks pretty interesting, so we'll see. We'll see how it goes. Maybe it'll be horrible. I don't know. (laughs)
1: love it okay so other than that we will ask you guys to rate review and subscribe you can find us on instagram and twitter at go doc yourself we also have a website go so anyway please come there we're um, updating our content as we speak we have some stuff to put up there so anyway come and see us we'd love to hear from you basically so yeah
0: all right well until next week guys laters bye, bye. It's nice to